This is Thinking in Public, a program dedicated to intelligent conversation about frontline theological and cultural issues with the people who are shaping them. I'm Albert Moeller, your host and president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. What is the fate of belief in the modern world? That is one of the most important questions we can address, and we need thinkers who can help us by means of their research and writing to understand what is taking place all around us, and for that matter, also to be able to look to the future. Professor Grace Davey began her sociological career as she studied at the University of Exeter. She followed that with a doctorate at the London School of Economics, and since then, she has become one of the most influential researchers in the area of religion, modernity, and secularization. She served as a professor in the Department of Sociology at Exeter, where she's also served as director of the University Center for European Studies. She is also now involved in a major research project concerning the future of religion in the Nordic countries. Professor Grace Davey, welcome to Thinking in Public. I'm very pleased to be with you. Your work has been often cited, and anyone with a concern for the Church, not only in Great Britain or Europe, but also in North America, is probably increasingly familiar with some of the categories that you have offered us in order to think about these things, even if not directly impacted by your work. Can you give us your account of the big story of what has happened to Christianity in general and religion more specifically in the context of modern Europe? I can try. I think the most important thing to, to, to get hold of is, is that the, the situation is, is complex, and if you are to understand it fully, you need to take a variety of factors into account. If you read a press account um, or hear a, a media clip, all too often, one aspect or one factor is isolated rather than the the picture in its fullness, um, uh, which is complicated. So let me suggest that we, we talk about five, possibly six factors. We would need to think about the um, cultural heritage of Europe, which is indisputably Christian. We would need to think about what I call the old model. And, and if you like, the easiest way to understand this is uh, the notion of religion as a public utility, which is uh, uh, much easier for Europeans to grasp than it is for Americans, because we are very familiar with public utilities. I also use the term vicarious religion to describe this, which we can talk about in a moment. Uh, but things are changing, and so on top of this public utility, the old model, the state church, the parish system, um, we see an incipient market where some forms of religion um, do better than others. And this cuts right across the denominational mix. You can have success in the state church, and you can have success in the free churches. You can have, um, I won't call it failure, but you, could, you can have um, churches or parishes that struggle more in both inside and outside the state churches. Uh, we would also need to take into account um, new arrivals into Europe, um, people of um, many different faiths, but including Christians. Um, European religion is being replenished, if you like, by immigrations from the global south. Um, but we also have a, a more pluralist um, state of affairs than we used to, and we would have to take note of the presence of Islam as a catalyst of change in Europe. Then we would need to consider secular reactions to this changing situation, um, notably the, 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 the very shrill and loud voices of new atheism, but it, it, it's more the more nuanced picture than that. And the last point I would 
like to make would be that increasingly, increasingly, Europeans um, appreciate and realize that their situation is not a global prototype. It is simply not the case that what uh, Europeans do today in terms of religion, the rest of the world will do tomorrow, as Europeans thought for quite a long time. Um, but that yes. is no longer the case, and some Europeans are um, humbled by this situation, are very ready to learn from the rest of the world. Other Europeans are, are somewhat disconcerted. And it's the gathering of all those threads that, that makes for the really fascinating and interesting picture that is religion in modern Europe today. If, you, if you'd like me to develop any of that. Yes, absolutely. And, and that's a fascinating way of doing it. It's kind of like front-loading the conversation. There was so much material there. Uh, before moving to specific points that you made, I want to ask you to, to respond to the kind of the inherited model of secularization theory that certainly became uh, more or less the, the, the common intellectual fare among uh, the, those in the 20th century, even in the late 19th century, and uh, certainly through the 20th century, in, in terms of what was thought to be the inevitable result of modernization. I mean, there are people such as Peter Berger, uh, with whom we've had another conversation on this program, who, who, looking at that theory, said it didn't work many places, but it seems to have worked pretty much according to course in Europe. Uh, that's pretty much correct. Um, what I would say, the, the, the way I would answer that, I would say that the questions we have to ask ourselves are, is Europe secular because it is modern? Or is Europe secular because it is European? And as soon as you move to the latter question, and you develop specifics, the, the, the factors that I, I spoke to you about one minute ago, um, you begin to realize that this is not a generalizable picture uh, and that the secularization story is, is part of the European story rather than the modernization story. So there are the aspects of modernization in Europe that um, uh, help us to understand why, where the misunderstanding came from. Um, for example... The two key factors that I would isolate would be the fact that European churches in the old model, uh, in the public utility model, are embedded in territory, both at the national level, the notion of a state church, or even prior to that, the notion of an empire, um, but also at a parish level. Uh, and, and the parish is a key, key item, key element in European history, whether you understand this as a civic um, entity or as an ecclesiastical one, and of course, very often they were the same. And Europeans yes. lived in parishes, and their lives revolved around parishes. And the church was the centre of the parish. Now, at the time of the Industrial Revolution, when m m many people in the population, the majority of the population, moved from rural areas to urban areas, you find the church is locked in an older territorial model and cannot move with them. Yes. You Obviously, know, this was compensated for um, retrospectively by huge programs of church building in cities in the 19th century. But in a way, the damage was already done. Mm. Uh, 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 and the link between, as it were, people and, and church was broken. Yes. And of course, that did not happen in the U.S. You had no, um, no really established um, pattern of religion before you had urbanization and, and industrialization. So when newcomers, new arrivals came to the U.S., to Detroit or Pittsburgh or New York or Boston or wherever, they brought their religion with them straight into the cities. 
No, that is a fascinating insight. And and I'm so pleased to have the conversation with someone speaking from from Great Britain and 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 from the European uh, understanding of these things based upon your very intensive research there. I benefited so much by your writings in the past. In particular, I think of your book written in 1994 or published then, Religion in Britain, since 1945. Professor Davey, in the subtitle to that book that was published, uh, I believe, by Blackwell, uh, you really coined a phrase that has become rather indispensable to at least part of the discussion here about the future of of Christianity in particular or religion in general uh, in, in modern cultures, and that is your term of believing without belonging. Can you explain that for us? I, I, I can, uh, but I would also say that, that I am moving away from that idea, and maybe I can incorporate my shift in my explanation. Um, the, the idea was to capture the difference between what I would call hard indicators of attachment, church-going, um, compared with much softer indicators of affiliation, if you like, or, or, or identification. Yes, I believe in God, but I'm not very specific about the God in whom I believe. Who, in whom I believe, I, I think that this world is in some way penultimate. Yes, there's a spiritual dimension, but it's not very specific. So this phrase captured what I still think is the most interesting and significant element of European populations, including Britain which is the gray area, the people in between. Um, and I used the term believing without belonging to, to highlight this, this focus, if you like, or, or on the gray area. We knew more about the extremes and the exotics than we did about the everyday lives of most people. And that's where I placed my emphasis. And the phrase is alliterative, and it caught the attention immediately, put it into a search engine, and it, it, it's everywhere. Well, that's not, um, a, that's not a small achievement, quite frankly, in the intellectual world, so you certainly deserve credit for that. But I, I, I want to go beyond uh, your rather modest uh, affirmation of this, and, and, and I, I do want you to trace your thinking after this. As a matter of fact, uh, I, I want to help you to do that by references to your later work. But you were on to something there that I think just about every pastor uh, understands, and anyone observing uh, contemporary Christianity understands, that there are those who do indeed uh, believe without belonging. That is most certainly the case, and, and it, is, it, it is very much um, one reason why, why um, I, I had a huge number of invitations from um, uh, church organizations and, uh, uh, and people in the church who wished me to speak on, on this subject, in addition to academic um, presentations or audiences. But what, what I want to tell you, what, what I think is, is worth pointing out, is that I now think it is incorrect to, to consider belief as to be the soft variable and belonging as being the hard variable. Because what I think now is that both belief and belonging can be hard or soft. Yes. And so, if you're thinking of belonging first, you can have the regular attender and you can have the identify. Yes, I'm a member of the Church of England, and, and there are many of them in the European state churches, but I don't feel any uh, obligation or need to attend my church, but yes, I'm a member. In fact, the Nordic churches, to pick up that project that we were talking about at the beginning, of course, express this in, in, in that they pay church tax. Uh, uh, and most Nordic people, the vast majority of Nordic people pay 
an element of tax to the church, even though they rarely attend it. Now, that indicates to me that they have a commitment, um, even if it's not expressed in, in regular worship. But that is belonging. Now, if you turn to belief, there's a big difference between the kind of belief I was um, talking about earlier when, when I believe in God, I believe in this world is in some way penultimate, compared with I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Uh, and so you can have a hard, creedal statement of belief, and you can have a much looser one. And, and it's for this reason that I, I prefer now the term vicarious religion than that of believing without belonging. But, but trying to persuade people who read my work that that is the case is, is a good deal more difficult. Well, I can understand that, and I can even uh, can sense some of the frustration there. But I, I, I do think one of the achievements of what you, uh, what you saw in that first book and made clear uh, is true not only for Britain, but also for those of us here in the United States. And uh, at the very time, I wrote a review in which I suggested that your subtitle could work in either direction. That, that is, that we do have the phenomenon of believing without belonging uh, I think most of us probably fear what would be the the other direction, which is belonging without believing, and uh, and certainly in terms of uh, of mainstream Protestantism in the United States, uh, in terms of its theological modifications. I think a very good case can be made that that not only do you have people who who believe but are alienated from the institutional structures, you have people who are in the institutional structures, but then then basically redefine those structures so that it no longer requires hard beliefs. Well, uh, I think one thing that, 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 that the careful researchers should, should persist in, in, in looking at is, is the very subtle and complex relationships between believing and belonging and which is prior and, and, and how they enhance each other or, or not. Um, but, but certainly the Nordics, my, my, my Nordic colleagues, did turn the phrase around just like you did yourself uh, and, and say Nordic people do belong without believing um, because they, they, they retain this, this um, uh, attachment to the church, which is not, I, I, I think, is, 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 is not insignificant. I think that's the most important thing to realize, is, is that nominal attachment is quite different from no attachment at all. And yes. certainly in, in the European case, that requires a good deal of thought, consideration, uh, and further research. Well, speaking of research, you have done a great deal of that. And in your first book, uh, the, the major book I mentioned, Religion in Britain Since 1945, one of the things you look at is generational uh, change. And I'm sure you've continued your thoughts since then. But I, I think a, a lot of us would be interested to know, if you were tracing, as you did in this book, that kind of generational change in terms of the understanding of, of faith and, it, and its priority and its place and, and, and the role of belief or belonging can you trace the, the generational shifts that took place in, in Great Britain and in Europe since World War II? Yes, you could do that. Um, I, I mean, I think it maps uh, very... Uh, there's quite clear mapping that you can do. I mean, quite clearly, the 60s turn out to be a, a, um, a pivotal decade. Um, and, and, I mean, if you think of in terms of... Um, the market research, you, you, you would think of the, the World War II generation and the one born immediately after it, which is mine, the baby boomers. And then um, and we were raised in the 60s or came to age in the 60s. And then Generation X, Generation Y. You, you, you can see very distinctive patterns with, with the shift coming around um, the 1960s 
I mean, the 1950s were, were quite a conservative generation because I think there was a real aspiration in, in, in a continent that had been devastated by the war to put things back and, and to, 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 as it were, see how much stability you could reassert after the war. But, but that all comes apart in the 1960s um, when every single institution in, in our society, including the U.S., of course, w w was, was challenged radically um, by all sorts of people. Um, now, the 1970s become a very different kind of decade because, um, because of the oil crisis at the beginning of the um, decade, which really kicks in towards the end when unemployment begins to rise and the global economy becomes very insecure, um, the confidence of the 1960s diminishes. And then I think you get a different mood, um, which made people reflect differently, if you like, about the sacred, though not necessarily in the forms that, that it, 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 was, it took prior to the 1960s. And although this is talking more about decades than generations, I've come to realize increasingly that the really key date, if you're studying religion, both in Europe and in the wider world, is 79, 1979. Though we didn't realize it at the time, of course. And why was and that? 1979 is, well, for... for British people, it is the election of Mrs. Thatcher, but that's a side issue. Um, uh, it, but it is the, where, uh, it's not entirely a side issue because it's when the free market begins to dominate. But um, more directly, it is the year of the Iranian Revolution, mm. which was yes. for Western people a complete turn up for the books. This was not anticipated. But it is also the election of John Paul II. Within a month or two, um, which led in turn, of course, though it's a complex story and I don't want to oversimplify it, um, to the um, fall, fall, uh, fall of communism, fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989-1990. And I think one of the most interesting things to, to reflect on is that no political, economic or social scientist anticipated those events. Nobody yes. saw them coming. Uh, and I've often thought, you know, for a science, social sciences that, that claim um, to be predictive, um, that this, this, needs, this requires attention. Now, what went wrong? And I don't want to oversimplify the story, and, uh, uh, and I would ask you to, to, to consider this with some subtlety. Um, but I do think that if we had paid more attention to religion, we might have been closer. Yes. We might have been closer. So I, I say at once that, of course, the fall of communism was was a deeply complex affair in, in which the, the, the failure of the command economy was central. Um, but So there are many, many factors to take into account. But, but um, somehow our eyes were on the wrong ball, put it that way. Mm. Now, if I could just ask and you... And then, of course, the, the, the narrative continues to 9-11. Oh, absolutely, um, and and you might say even beyond, and and right now, it, it, because uh, this book was written, or at least published in 1994, if you were to take that generational analysis just one step further and, and, and speak about the generation of young people today, how how would you describe them in contrast to the generation uh, that came before? Um, different. Um, young people, um, say my children, my children's generation and younger, which would be people in their 20s, 30s now, 
um, feel absolutely no sense of obligation to attend a church. There's no pattern or, 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 or feeling that it, it, it's a, um, a right or respectable thing to do. You can live, live perfectly adequate lives way outside the churches, and that's the normal situation in Europe. Um, I think you need to be very careful when you think about secularization in these terms, because what it also means is those who do go to church, young or old, are probably going for much more um, purely religious reasons than for social or respectable reasons. Mm. So you've got to be careful what you're, you're measuring, yes. if, you, if you like. So what I would add is that the young people who do go to church, and, and that there are some, um, are probably highly committed. Um, what we are losing is... is um, let me explain this if I, if I were to think about the, the right of confirmation in the Church of England. Um, now in England, that would have been a kind of teenage rite of passage for not huge but significant numbers of people around 13, 14, and still is in the Nordic countries. But in England now, the numbers of young people being confirmed are, are minimal, 1%, 2%, maybe less. Um, but um, if you go to a confirmation service in, in the Church of England now, you might find um, people from 9 or 10 up to 90. I see. Um, who have decided, for one reason or another, to to make a public commitment of something that was until then private. Now, the numbers are fewer, but the commitment is higher. Defined by conviction Indeed. rather than so much by age. By age or, or, or by habit or by obligation. It's by choice and commitment. This is what I term in, in, in my analysis if I move from the old model to the new model. Um, uh, a shift from obligation to consumption. Now, now the term obligation is a nice one because it, it has a resonance of feast of obligation as Catholic, um, sure. a Catholic socialization would, 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 would imply. Consumption I don't like so much because it has the wrong kind of connotation from secular consumption. But what I mean is choice, and I mean seriously made choice, which has huge implications um, in public as well as private life. And so what you are seeing in Europe is fewer actively committed religious people, whether in uh, Christians or other, but, uh, but, but the levels of commitment are higher. Well, those are fascinating insights. I think the very idea that we can talk about believing without belonging and also belonging without believing points to the fact that there's a great deal to think about here. Those of us who care about Christianity and, uh, for that matter, about evangelization and about our own children, the, the fate of Christianity in the modern world need to understand that there are temptations at every side when it comes to both believing and belonging. Professor Davey, you've not only coined the phrase believing without belonging, but you've also pointed to something that you've called vicarious religion. And I think most of us looking at that instantly see that we know exactly what you're talking about. You were speaking, of course, of the context there in the United Kingdom and in Europe, but uh, it can be generalized to other places as well. What is vicarious religion? 
Um, now, this is very interesting when I'm, I'm engaging with, with a, a, an, an American and an American audience, um, because I think it, it, it is very much a European feature, but maybe I can make it resonate for you as well. Um, it comes from the term vicarious, which means to do something on behalf of. Um, and what really interests me is the relationship between the relatively few number of people who are active in their faith and the larger penumbra that surrounds them. Um, because I have the sense that that wider group of people, that penumbra, um, still, though it may not last for too much longer, still has a relationship with the active minority who they recognize are doing something on behalf of them. They are sustaining an organization, an institution, that a much larger number of people may require at some moment in their lives. And that moment, that moment may, may appear unexpectedly. One of the best um, moments to, to observe vicarious religion is what happens in a society when something shocking happens or something goes seriously wrong. Or, or, to be more positive, at a, a moment of celebration. H how do people respond in, in that situation when, when, as if you, if you like, the banality of everyday life is, is suddenly stripped away? Now, you make the point, uh, and, and, and I think our audience would understand this immediately, especially those who, who were alive at the time. You make the point that in Great Britain, perhaps, the crystallizing moment to, to see this was the aftermath in British society uh, to the accidental death of Princess Diana. It was certainly a great example at the time. Um, I have to remember now when I'm teaching younger students that they don't really remember it. Um, uh, it, it happened in 97, I'm right, I think. Uh, and um, so they were small children when it happened. The, 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 there's a good deal of footage that you can use to, to remind them. Um, but I can, you, you, you can keep on... Uh, now, a very good example, which is right up to date, is, is what has happened at St. Paul's Cathedral. Um, I guess you're familiar with the um, anti-capitalist protest Absolutely. that has taken place in, uh, outside the cathedral. Uh, and uh, and the, the, the real dilemma of, of the chapter in the cathedral to, um, uh, to address these issues. I find this very interesting because um, when the Archbishop, the Archbishop of Canterbury, um, joined the conversation... He um, he started his. Uh, I'm just trying to remember where he published it. It was in one of the major in the Financial Times. Um, he started it by saying some commentators on in society indicate that the church is a place where the wider community work out issues that they are puzzled by, um, implying the term vicariously that Absolutely. the church is doing the thinking on behalf of the wider society. And, I, I mean, I've talked to Archbishop Rowan Williams about vicarious religion, and I'm sure that's what he had in his mind. Well, Professor, um, uh, uh, you know, you, you mentioned the, the, the British or the European context, and I understand when you said it might be more difficult for Americans to understand this. But I, I think the American category of civil religion largely implies the same reality, uh, where, for instance, in the aftermath of 9-11, many people yeah. who, who did not have any specific religious faith, any specific theistic belief, nonetheless were very glad that there were commemorative events, that there were prayer services, that there were gatherings. And, and uh, you know, 
both in Great Britain in the case of, of Princess Diana uh, and her funeral or in the United States in the aftermath of 9-11 or similar things, there is uh, even a desire on the part of rather secular people for the formality and the weight of, uh, of very traditional religious services. I, I think you're absolutely right. Um, and I certainly felt that echo after 9-11 myself and when I went to Ground Zero myself. I, I felt it very strongly. Um, where I would wonder, as I put a question mark, is I think that vicarious religion is in many ways a residue or, or a spin-out or spin-off of, of the state church. And the notion that the state church is a public utility and therefore all of us at the point of need. Um, very much yes. like our national health service or welfare system. And all those elements of public utility, national health care, a welfare system are rather different in the United States. And I have a sense that, that the state church and the welfare state in that respect are mirror images of each other. And so I think um, what has very much struck me in, in the European case is when I have lectured all over Europe, um, from the north to the south, from Finland to Greece or or, or Spain or wherever, and, and in many cases I've had to use an interpreter because of, um, I don't speak the language, and, and the, the interpreter has to um, translate vicarious religion, which is not an everyday term in most languages, um, and he or she finds a way of doing it, and you see the resonance for the audience straight away, and afterwards they will come and give me examples of vicarious religion in their own communities, their own families, their own countries, their own situations. And when I do the same in America, I do get a resonance, but I don't get anywhere sure. near a stronger one. Oh, I think that makes uh, sense. And I think it's because um, you have a very different patterning of religion. You have a, um, a, a, the notion of a, a, a congregation of, of, of voluntarism, of, of, of denomination. And, and of course, uh, in the American Constitution, there is no state church. There is a wall of separation. Uh, and, and I'm interested that you can find, nevertheless, some echo of vicarious religion in your own situation. Absolutely. I think, uh, once again, as with uh, believing without belonging, you've given us an intellectual category, a tool uh, with which uh, we can, in, in various ways, uh, come to understand the realities that we see on both sides of the Atlantic. I want to ask you about some specific questions of belief. Uh, in all of your works, you, you have documented a, a very significant loss of belief. Uh, and so when you speak about believing without belonging, I, I want to go back to the believing part and just talk about how you as a sociologist see the status or, or, or the future, the fate of belief uh, in highly modern societies, and in particular uh, in, uh, in Britain and in Europe. I think it's self-evident that, that if large sections of the population drift away from the churches on any regular basis, um, the content of their belief will drift. Uh, and if I were to, to, to put it in terms of a challenge to the institutional church, or in churches, which is, is, is a better way of talking about it, it, it is um, uh, the, the drifting nature of belief is a much bigger challenge than secularism which is not to say that secularism does not exist uh, and at times can become very strident. Um, but the most likely individual that a church leader or pastor will engage with will be somebody with some sense of the numinous of the sacred, but, but that is largely contentless. Uh, uh, and, uh, I mean, I think it is very striking that, that um, 
younger generations now are are not raised um, on the narratives of Christianity and they have very little idea of liturgy or hymnody or or, or Bible story or, 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 or early Christian teaching, um, which, interestingly, is a kind of a major problem if you want to do something like art history or um, yes. to study literature, because so much art in, in, in the European context, um, at least half, maybe two-thirds of your major galleries are full of Christian art. Uh, and believer or not, if you if you don't understand, if you don't have the the information about those stories, you're going to find it very difficult to interpret the art. Um, and the same is true in music and 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 in literature. That that um, uh, in many ways, um, students who wish to do this seriously have to do a refresher course, if you like, or a, or a basic course in Christianity well, in- um, to 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 bring themselves mm-hmm. up to speed. In your book of the year 2000, Religion in Modern Europe, A Memory Mutates, uh, you speak about mm. that memory, and in one in one uh, uh, paragraph here, you really set the stage for a very ominous future in, in the very respect of which you're speaking. I'm reading to you from page 97 of your book. You said, it remains the case, however, that religious illiteracy is widespread in modern Europe amongst younger generations. With this in mind, it seems entirely possible that the religious memory of Europe at least in its traditional form of a basic understanding of Christian teaching, might simply cease to exist, except as a branch of specialist knowledge. It is indeed precarious. Now, I have to tell you, I, I think that is one of the strongest uh, paragraphs I've ever read, uh, uh, warning us of, about the loss of not only Christian knowledge, but of a Christian memory. Uh, it could happen. Um, that said, I don't think it will, um, because I think the churches, though they are a minority will continue, and they will sustain the memory vicariously. The other thing, of course, that will happen is that we have a continual invigoration from the global south. Um, so even if the European church were to keel over altogether, which is not going to happen, um, it, it, Christianity doesn't lose its presence. Um, what I think has gone is a, a much more common knowledge, if you see what I mean. Yes. Um, uh, uh, and uh, but but I think you need to, to think in the round about this, because when I uh, teach to, say, students of 2021 20, who, who have lost this knowledge, um, I have to remember that they have a very different attitude to knowledge than, than I had at their age. Um, they know less because they know how to find out more. Um, I, I think they hold less in their their their, their their head or mind, but they have very, very good um, means of accessing knowledge. And one of the things that you do when you teach now is, is to train students how to access knowledge with care rather than to um, uh, simply look at Wikipedia in a rather um, um, uncritical way, because they can get it back. They know how to do that. And so they retain less. But I think it's also important to remember that this is equally true of, say, geographical knowledge. Yes, well, that's true. Um, so yeah. I think that's a thing to, to, to factor in. But I do think it's true that the average young, young person in Europe would be unlikely to be, uh, to be able to tell you more than the very basic outline of the Christian story 
but they might not be able to tell you very much about um, the history of their own society. Yes. Well, and you know, you've been writing about this for a long time. I think the first thing I ever read uh, of your writing was an article that was published uh, back in, in 1990. It was entitled An Ordinary God, The Paradox yeah. of Religion in Contemporary Britain. And yeah. you cited a survey, a study, I believe it was done in 1968 in an English village in which a gentleman was asked, do you believe in a God who can change the course of events on Earth? And he said, no, just the ordinary one. Which is one of the best quotes in the literature. Absolutely. And and I'm much indebted to you for bringing that to my attention. I went back and, and, and looked at the Abercrombie study and, uh, you know, that was not a young person. That was, a, as I understand the study, a, a relatively old person. So this yeah. is a process yeah. that has, so has, has begun so a long time ago. It's not so new. But I think what, 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 what I would say is, is that if you go to church, even reluctantly or for the wrong reasons or for very mixed reasons, don't we all, um, you are kind of drip-fed a narrative which becomes part of you. Yes. Now, that kind of thinking is, is less and less the case mm. in most European societies. But, but be, be careful not to think of Europe as, as a single entity. Um, I mean, if, sure. if you went to uh, Greece or, or to, to Italy, you would have a rather different picture. Um, but as I said to you when we started this conversation, it, it's quite seductive to dwell on this kind of loss of the old model and to forget the, the, the new shoots that are growing over it. And, I mean, what I did not anticipate in, in 1994, um, no way did I think it would happen, is the return of religion to public discussion, um, as has happened in, in, say, from 1990, more from 2000 on. So it now becomes um, a, a major news item many days of the week. Absolutely. Um, why is this so? Well, it's at this point that you need to consider the influence of Islam. Now, not because there are enormous numbers of Muslims in Europe. That is not the case. Um, but it is the case that um, the um, arrival of Islam in Europe has made it less easy for um, people in public life or, or scholars of religion to regard religion simply as a private matter because it's not easy to, to privatize Islam. It's a different way Absolutely. of being religious and it um, is much more a way of life where politics and religion and law merge. Now this has, old, it's like a catalyst, it's altered the terms of the debate in Europe, meaning that we now discuss religion in public in an entirely new way. Now the problem, of course, is that because of all the things we've just discussed and the loss of vocabulary and loss of narrative and, and loss of um, um, story that, uh, in the population as a whole means that we come to this new public debate um, without the tools and concepts that we need to, to discuss um, religion in an informed manner. Uh, and this is something that genuinely saddens me about the European debate. It is um, a, 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 a fascinating debate about the place of religion in public life, but the quality of the discussion is very poor. Yes. For very understandable reasons, but it's not a good combination. Oh, I can understand. It's the narrative and... at precisely the yeah. moment you need it most. 
you've helped to trace out not only the problem but the reasons. And and, and finally, I, w- I want to ask you about an issue that you mentioned very early on in our conversation, and, and that is the question as to whether Europe is a special case. Is it the shape of the future? Uh, you know, the, the idea, at least behind many of the early secularization theorists, was that Europe is how the rest of the world is going to look. And you said increasingly Europe doesn't even believe that anymore. Uh, it's not the case. Uh, I, I mean, you can find echoes of the European situation in... in um, the English-speaking dominions, a little bit in Canada, a little bit in New Zealand, Australia, uh, which are interesting cases, but they're um, small populations. Now, think of Australia. Um, the future of religion in, in, in Southeast Asia is not going to be decided in Australia, but in Indonesia. Um, and there's this increasing awareness that, that, that what we have experienced in Europe is not going to be the pattern elsewhere. I mean, think of the U.S., think of Pentecostalism in the global south, think of sub-Saharan Africa, think of the Middle East, think of the subcontinent, the Indian subcontinent, think of the Pacific Rim, think of China. It's not going to look like Europe. The BRIC countries, the the, the, the economies that are forging ahead, Brazil, South Africa, Soviet Union, China, are are, are not, uh, they're not new Europe. They're something entirely different. Uh, and in many of these places, um, forms of religion, forms of Christianity and other religions, are flourishing in in in, in uh, rapidly advancing economies. There is no necessary relationship between modernization and secularization. I think that is simply false. And that's a profound way to end this discussion. Professor Grace Davy, thank you for joining me for Thinking in Public. You're very welcome. Well, in that short statement, Professor Grace Davey simply turned secularization theory, in one sense, upside down. While acknowledging its legitimate insights, she said very clearly, we now know modernity does not equal secularization. Most Christians are aware that we are a part of a social reality. Many are at least aware that there is a field of study known as sociology. Many Christians, or for that matter, just laypersons in the larger society, tend to think of sociology simply as a descriptive discipline. It's not just a descriptive discipline, and it never has been. In one sense, the field of sociology emerged as a means of giving a secular explanation for human social behavior. Speaking of sociology in the present, it is not merely descriptive, although we learn a great deal by its descriptive task. It is also explanatory, and that's what makes it really interesting. A sociologist like Grace Davey, who has a great deal of intellectual reputation and research behind her, a a, a scholar who's able to look not only at Great Britain and in Europe, but also to speak knowledgeably about the United States and other parts of the world, is someone who brings not only a powerful skill at description, but also an incredible skill at explanation. Now, her verbiage has been very important here. She has indeed coined some very important intellectual tools for us. She's well-known in the field of religious sociology or the sociology of religion for her phrase, believing without belonging, about which we've spoken. And I think it's important that we recognize that this is a phenomenon that is simply undeniable. It it may not be even now the main way of explaining what is going on in, in church life or religious life around us, but it is something that we know still continues to be a very important pattern. There are persons, whatever the reason, whatever the cause, whatever their motivation, who simply want religion on their own terms. This seems to me to merge very clearly with what Professor Davey talks about in the shift of religion from obligation to a consumer mentality or from a sense of obligation to a sense of choice. 
There are many people who are simply saying, I choose this belief, I choose this set of beliefs, I choose to believe in this way, and I'm not accountable to any institutional reality. I'm not accountable to a congregation, to a church, to a denomination, to a theological tradition. I'm a believer in my own way, but, uh, but I'm not a, a belonger. Now, what does make this interesting, I think, when you reverse it, and I was tempted to do that from the very first time I read her, her work, is the fact that there are also those, and perhaps I would argue even more of those here in our context, who are belongers without believing, that they belong without believing. In other words, they would say, yes, I'm a member of a church, and uh, and this is what at one point in our history might well be described as kind of cultural or nominal Christianity, but it also refers to explicit and very intentional revisionist forms of Christianity. Uh, For instance, I mentioned in our conversation uh, the, the mainstream beliefs of mainline Protestants, uh, of liberal Protestantism. And all you have to do is look not only at the kind of creedal transformations, but at, uh, at, at the theological output and at uh, even the scholarly data concerning how the theological and doctrinal beliefs of mainline Protestants have changed. And, and it remains true that they do belong. But in terms of the historic structures and content of the Christian faith, they in many ways no longer believe. Now, I also think that the category of vicarious religion is really important. I understand that Professor Davey is, is really looking at the European context of, of state industries and, and, and state utilities and, uh, of course, of state churches in its own unique context. And, and I do understand there that, for instance, in Great Britain or the United Kingdom, there may be a good many people who say, I'm very glad that these people are doing this work for us. But I do think here in the United States we have something that is rather similar. We have people who are actually glad that even though they're not observant themselves, even though they do not believe themselves, they still think there's some utility, that there's some contribution that that, uh, that believers do make and that believing institutions do make. And as she mentioned, in a time of national trauma, such as the death of Princess Diana, and just remember, how did the British people then clamor? They clamored for the kind of formality, the, the, the kind of tradition, the, the kind of content, uh, even a rather awkward Christian content. Uh, to a memorial service and all that went with it in terms of national grieving. The same thing very similarly here in the aftermath of 9-11, and even in more local contexts, people tend to gather together and and instantly think in far more perhaps, uh, well, traditionally Christian ways, looking for traditional Christian habits and reflections uh, when that kind of trauma hits. And they're glad someone is at least there uh, believing these things, knowing these things, and, and stewarding these things. I think that is a helpful category. I am very much shaken in terms of concern by the kinds of insights that Professor Davey has brought in her book published in 2000, Religion in Modern Europe, A Memory Mutates. The book is brilliant, fascinating, and and rather haunting. The subtitle is, after all, A Memory Mutates. She talks about the mutation of the Christian memory in Europe. And that one sentence that I read, which I will now read again, that, that one very short passage It remains the case, however, that religious illiteracy is widespread in modern Europe amongst younger generations. With this in mind, it seems entirely possible that the religious memory of Europe, at least in its traditional form of a basic understanding of Christian teaching, might simply cease to exist, except as a branch of specialist knowledge. It is indeed precarious. Well, you think about the context of Europe, and it's easy to see that this might not be just a future trend, but uh, what's fairly often, of uh, a very present reality. Looking at the United States, can we honestly say that we think it's a great deal different? Uh, can, can we honestly say that we could count on the average person being asked about uh, the basic narrative of, of Christianity, being able to say much, if anything at all, about what that means? 
they might be able to speak of Christian symbolism. They might be able to speak of uh, of Christ in some sense. They might be able to speak of of, of some kind of good news or some kind of of, uh, of of belief system or morality. But it, but in terms of of the actual narrative of the Christian gospel, in terms of the content of the Christian faith, I think it's true that not only among the young but among even those who might be older, even in our context, the loss of a Christian memory is nothing less than catastrophic. And her writing here, her, her prose, is so very haunting that indeed that, that knowledge, that memory in its traditional form of a basic understanding of Christian teaching, and remember her words, might simply cease to exist. But remember the following words as well, except as a branch of specialist knowledge. There can be those out there who will be perhaps the, the, the monks in the monasteries, the uh, the, the last scholars on the islands who, who in, in, in their own way, perpetuate the belief and keep the lights burning. But in terms of the larger civilization, the content, the memory, the narrative, the truth, the gospel will be lost. We're living in very interesting times. A scholar like Professor Grace Davy helps us to understand our times. She's writing particularly about the United Kingdom and the European context. But anyone reading her work recognizes this is hitting closer to home than we might have thought. The conversation was very enjoyable and catalytic. Uh, I'd, I'd like to trace many things further, including how she spoke so knowledgeably about how the younger generation learns in very different ways than perhaps previous generations. We'll have to hold that for a future conversation. In the meantime, I'm thankful for the conversation we just had. Before signing off, I want to invite you to start making your plans to be here at Southern Seminary for our annual Give Me an Answer conference for college students. It'll be held February the 17th and the 18th of 2012. The theme of the conference is radical. Join me along with David Platt, Kevin DeYoung, Russell Moore, and others as we consider how the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ lays claim on every part of our lives. For more information, visit sbts.edu. Thank you for joining me for Thinking in Public. Until next time, Keep thinking. I'm Albert Moeller.